morning, we're going to jump right into our text, our passage this morning. So let's open our Bibles to John 12, 12 through 19, John 12, 12 through 19, and I've entitled this message, The Humble King. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this time that we can lift you on high, that we can come together corporately and worship you as the body of Christ. What sweet fellowship we are able to have in this place. Help us to live this way throughout the week. Help our lives be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. We thank you for this time we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Let your spirit work mightily on our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 12, verses 12 through 19 says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem during the Passover And it is estimated by Josephus, a pagan, first century historian, that about 2.7 million Jews came to this Passover festival to remember how God rescued the Jewish people from Egyptian captivity. But the question is, why now? Why would Christ come to Passover out in the open now? Because up to this point... Christ was careful about going into public events, going out in public. We see in John 7 that that he wouldn't go to Jerusalem into the Feast of Booths openly. He says that his time had not come yet. Or we could look back to John 2. Jesus says at the wedding of Cana, his time hadn't come when he turned water into wine. So up to John 12, Jesus was trying to go under the radar. He wasn't trying to get attention. Christ was working quietly. As he says on numerous occasions in the Gospel of John, that his time hadn't come yet. But, now we see a shift. A change. John 12 takes us into uncharted territories. Christ goes public with his ministry. Christ is no longer flying under the radar, but making himself known to the world. John 12.12 again says, The next day the large crowds 
that had come to visit him heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So Jesus was the talk of the town. Jesus was the talk of Jerusalem. Jesus, who had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, who had fed 5,000. Jesus, who calmed storms. Jesus, the thorn in the religious leader's sides, was coming to Jerusalem. The question again is, why now? Why is it that his time has now come? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark 10 why the time is now. He gives the reason why he is entering Jerusalem publicly. Mark 10, 32-34 tells us, and it says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. That's what it says. Christ was actually making himself an easy target for the Pharisees to start the process of his capture, his crucifixion, which would lead to his resurrection. Amen? But we see in Mark 10.34 that Christ knew every detail of what he faced as he headed towards Jerusalem. Let's read it again. Mark 10.34, which says, Jesus says this, and he will mock And they will mock him. They will spit on him and flog him and kill him. In three days he will rise. Can you imagine knowing how you would die? But worse, knowing how you would be mistreated, beaten, and finally brutally killed? This is what our Lord faced when he walked towards Jerusalem. But I say that suffering didn't end with Christ. Scripture said that all who are believers in Christ will suffer. Paul says and tells us in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you shouldn't only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul, who wrote this very verse, was beheaded for his faith during the reign of Nero in around 60 AD. Peter the Apostle, who was also martyred for his faith, history records that Peter was going to be crucified. But he said he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. And he was asked to be crucified upside down. And the rest of the apostles, except John, faced brutal persecutions that led to the death, their death for their faith. In Christ Jesus. And we can see throughout church history that many have lost their lives for their faith. And then we get to us. The American church. We get to people who have the freedom to worship God openly, at least right now. We have been blessed with Bibles galore, tools galore. I love commentaries. 
We've had the opportunity to share our faith with others in the public square without being thrown into prison. Amen? So the question is, are we prepared to suffer, even die for our faith? Are we willing to give our lives for our faith in Christ Jesus? But, but I think this question might be a distraction. I don't think it's the right question because I wonder how well we are living for Christ in the present. If we aren't faithful or obedient to Christ in the easy times, then what makes us think that we will be faithful to Christ if we encounter severe sufferings and persecutions in the future? Which leads to point number one. We are called to live for Christ before we are called to suffer for him. Let me say that again. We are called to live for Christ before we are called to suffer for him. But some may object and say that they really want to live for Christ right now. But there are just reasons, right? And in their mind, there are good reasons why they aren't faithful to God in the present time. Some of these reasons include, I am just too busy to read my Bible. Or, I just don't like to read, so I don't really pick up my Bible and read it. Or, I can't really pray more than a few minutes. My mind starts wandering. Where am I at? You know, that type of thing. Or, I just really don't like to lead my family in devotions. God hasn't gifted me to be a leader. Or, I don't like to share my faith with others because my faith is personal. Or, I don't see sin as a problem anymore now that I'm a Christian, so I don't have to walk in repentance any longer? Well, honestly, these really aren't good reasons at all. Disobeying God is never a good reason. These are what we would call lame excuses. That's a theological term. That shows that we can easily be deceived by our own thinking. And I must admit that I am often guilty of using some of these bad excuses as well, which leads me to wonder how many of us will suffer for Christ in the future if we aren't willing to live for Christ in the present again. Our faithfulness to Christ in the future can be measured or predicted by our faithfulness to Christ right now. As Christ walked faithfully to Jerusalem, he had been living faithfully to the Father before he started walking to Jerusalem. I wonder how faithful we are living for Christ this morning. I'm not trying to say that we won't struggle with sin, but what I am saying is do we have a desire to live for God, to please God? And that doesn't and that does mean that we have a desire that equals action, that it equals faithfulness to God in our daily lives. What if I asked your spouse or your friend or your children about your faithfulness to Christ? What would they tell me? Well, let's get back to our main text where Christ, as we remember, he's headed towards Jerusalem, right? So now we're in John 12, 13. 
John 12, 13, it says, So they, that's the Jewish people at the Passover, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of Israel. This looks great, right? I mean, Christ is coming and people are finally getting it. They're coming around. They're honoring Christ. They call him their king. And yet, and yet, in a week's time, these same people will call for Christ to be crucified. So what gives? How can people flip-flop so fast? How can they go from calling Christ king to wanting to crucify him? Well, we get a hint from John 12, 13, when the people say, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means, help us, God, or save us, God. The question is, what do the people want to be saved from? Right? We know that most Jews thought they were good. They thought they were very special. They were the chosen people of God. So they weren't asking for Christ to save them from their sinfulness. They weren't looking to Christ for spiritual help or spiritual salvation. From other scriptures, we know that they were looking to Christ to be their political leader. Their political leader, their savior, a Messiah that would free them from the Roman Empire and they would be able to rule the pagan nations around them. But the problem was Christ had no intentions of starting a revolution to free the Jewish people from Rome. Christ had a greater purpose than being an earthly king. Christ's kingdom was otherworldly. Christ's kingdom was eternal. Christ came to bring peace, not war. So in reality, as the people cheered, Hosanna, God save us. Hail King Jesus, King of Israel. They didn't praise Christ because they honored or loved him but the very opposite, because they loved themselves so much. They thought Christ was the way. They thought Christ was the conduit. They thought Christ was the person who could get them to what they really wanted. Christ will save us from Rome. Christ will free us from the captivity. Christ will finally give us our revenge from all these wicked pagan nations. It's about what I can get from Christ instead of how I can worship him. I see the same attitude with my children, especially right now with our four-year-old. I will call Silas, and he might say to me, Daddy, I will come to you. I will listen to you. But if I do, then can I have some yummy ice cream for dessert? And I have to lovingly tell Silas, obedience is not something we bargain for. You're called to obey mommy and daddy, not to get something in return, but because God's word tells you that obeying your parents is similar and the same as obeying God himself. But what about adults? What about us? Are we prone to want the blessings of God without wanting to worship him? 
I think if we examine our hearts, we can probably identify with the same sediment today. Our hearts often deceive us. Satan tempts us, and we can seek the Lord for many wrong reasons and purposes, right? God, I will follow you, but if I do, can you help me in my marriage? God, I will obey you, but I really need a better job. Or, God, I will give you my life as long as you give me a perfect wife, right? Now, I don't want us to be confused here. So let me say, we can ask God for help in our lives. Scripture says we should pray for all things on all occasions, but our obedience to God isn't predicated or dependent on God giving us what we want. Amen? Which leads to point number two. We live for God's glory without expecting anything in return. Let me say that again. We live for God's glory without expecting anything in return. There are no strings attached to our obedience to God. If there is, then we are obeying God for our own purposes, our own benefit. We're actually trying to use God for our own selfish reasons. This diminishes our praise, obviously, and our worship to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a very familiar passage to all of us, says this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Right? Proverbs tells us to trust God, depend on him. But when we place expectations on God, when we think we know better than God, well, that reveals we are leaning on our own understanding. It's revealing our heart. But again, verse 6 is such a sweet promise to us, right? It says God will make our paths straight, right? If we trust him, God knows our needs better than we know our needs. We can rest in him. The problem With us is we don't often want what we need. We want what we want, right? It's like my children who say, Daddy, I would like to have ice cream for breakfast. I can guarantee that they aren't thinking of wanting ice cream for breakfast because of the nutritional value. Because they think it's more, because they think that um, the ice cream might taste better than mommy's grain vegetable shakes that we drink in the morning. I think I want some ice cream in the morning, too. No. No. I think this is just how we are. We want what we want, right? And often God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. He loves us too much to give us often what we want. Just like I love and we love our children too much to give them what they want. Gary Thomas says in his book, Sacred Marriage, that God's goal is to make us holy more than make us happy. Often we are expecting God to make us happy, ease the pain. And honestly, most of the time we aren't that worried about God making us holy. I wonder if we can relate to wanting something so bad from God that we'll begin to bargain with him for it. God, I'll read my Bible every day if you just work out this one mess that I'm in right now, right? 
Rather, we should pray for all situations that we face and trust that God is a great, magnificent, loving Father even when his answer to us is no. Right? Amen? I think we sometimes forget how great, how magnificent, how big God is. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 reminds us by saying this, Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift of him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God has all wisdom. God has all knowledge. God has all power. We can trust him. We can depend on him. We can have confidence in our sovereign God. Amen? This morning, as you consider the God we serve, I would ask you if you really do trust and depend on God. Or do you more times than not lean on your own understanding? A good way to gauge if we are trusting in the Lord is how often does God's word guide our life? Or what does our prayer life look like? Both reveal our dependence on God. Let's turn back to our main passage. And we're now in John 12, 14 and 15. John 12, 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the crowds were waiting, right, in anticipation of Christ coming, and they see a figure emerging in the distance, right? They begin to get excited as they recognize it is Christ. Now, I'm imagining this. This isn't actually in the scriptures. But what is he writing? He is riding something. It's probably a beautiful black stallion or a white stallion. I mean, royalty only rides on the finest of horses. But as he gets closer, it's evident that Christ isn't riding a magnificent horse, but some sort of little animal. It's like the size of a large dog. It's a donkey. But it's not a regular-sized donkey. Christ is riding a miniature donkey. A little donkey. Christ is riding a young little donkey, the scripture says. The king of kings, royalty riding on a young donkey. The crowd probably was dumbfounded. But Christ wasn't focused on status or what was culturally acceptable. Christ was a different sort of king. Christ, a king from another world. Christ was a humble king. It was probably what began to show the crowds. Christ wasn't the type of king that they had expected. Many at this point probably started having their doubts about Christ as they watched him strolling in on a tiny little donkey. But the donkey specifically represented two things. Number one, riding on the donkey represented peace instead of war. Point number one here, riding on the donkey represented peace instead of war. The horse-mounted 
king came bent on war. But king riding in on a donkey represented a king who brought peace. Which ironically, as we know, Christ came to bring peace between God and man. Amen? But secondly, riding on the donkey was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. The second reason for the donkey, riding on the donkey was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Christ was fulfilling what Zechariah said about 700 years earlier. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt. And we have to remember that this is just one of 350 Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled. That alone is astonishing. That alone proves that Christ was Messiah. I wonder if there are some of us this morning who are struggling to believe that Christ is both Lord and Savior. I would encourage you to study the 350 prophecies that Christ fulfilled. This may be what God uses to draw your heart to himself. But let's now turn our attention to John 12, 16 through 19. The final verses in our, in our section. And John does something unique to his writings. He likes to describe all the characters in the story. He gives us a little insight of their motivations, what they're thinking, what's going on in their hearts. John 12, 16 starts with the disciples. And it says this, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the first group John describes are the disciples who are clueless to what is happening. Although Jesus had just told them, as we had read in Mark 10, on the way to Jerusalem, what would happen to him, they still don't get it. They don't have a clue. But this comes as no surprise to us, right? Because the disciples often were lost and clueless with what Jesus would say and what he would do. We see this in John 4 when Jesus was with the women, the woman at the well, right? And the disciples urged Christ because he hadn't eaten for a long time, so they urge him and say, Jesus, you need to eat something. And Jesus says to them that he has food to eat that they don't know about. And Jesus, of course, is referring to spiritual food and is teaching the disciples that empty bellies are far less important than empty souls. Christ was saying spiritual food is what matters. It is what nourishes the soul. And after the teaching lessons, the disciples walk away and start talking to one another. And they say, who brought him something to eat? Where did he get the food? Right over their head. Jesus' teachings often went right over their heads. But we have to remember, church, that the disciples here hadn't yet received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As John 14, 16 says, Jesus talking to the disciples says this, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
So when the Holy Spirit indwelled the disciples, he brought to remembrance the many things of Christ's teachings of when they had walked with him for the last three years. And I would assume out of thin air as the apostles were reminiscing back, thinking back, they probably said things like out of, the, out of thin air, wow, or that is unbelievable, or that is what Jesus meant when he did such and such. It was probably daily revelations, daily epiphanies, insights as the Holy Spirit taught them that Je- what Jesus meant when they reflected back on their time with Christ. Which leads to point number three. As believers, we are often clueless and enlightened. As believers, we are often clueless and enlightened. I must say that we are also like the disciples because we are often very clueless with what God is doing through us and around us. I mean, I have a hard enough time just understanding my wife. And yet, it's hard to understand what God's doing around us and through us sovereignly all the time. But as we walk in the Spirit, as Galatians tells us, we begin to have a greater understanding of God, a supernatural clarity of what He is doing through us, in us, and around us. We begin to have those aha moments when a verse that just, that we've been reading our whole lives uh, just jumps off the page when we're reading it. We see it differently. We see the verse with a depth and a perspective we have never seen before. theological term for this is called progressive sanctification. It's the idea that we are a work in progress and it'll take the rest of our lives to be made into the image of Christ Jesus. I wonder how you see yourself this morning spiritually. Can you relate to the disciples' absent-mindedness? What about being enlightened? Do you have those moments When the lights just turn on and all of a sudden you have clarity of what God is doing? Or theologically, you see a truth more clear than you have ever seen it before. Well, let's go back to our main section, the last two verses of John 12. And we're in John 12, verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard had heard the signs that he had done. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the crowd consisted of one group who saw Jesus, saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, another group who heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and finally the Pharisees who wanted Jesus killed. And we know that the Pharisees are in a panic as they see all these people all around waiting in anticipation for Christ. As the Pharisees say, right, in verse 19, look, the whole world has gone after him. But again... In a week's time, with the help of the Pharisees pressuring the Roman government, Satan's working through the Romans and the Jews, and ultimately God's sovereignty orchestrating it all, this very crowd that seemed to love Christ, adore Christ, would beg for his crucifixion. They would beg for a criminal to be set free in order to crucify the perfect Son of God. 
So the question is, what can we glean from the crowds? What can we learn from the fickleness of the crowd? Well, this leads to point number four. People are easily influenced. People are easily influenced. What's the verse that parents always tell the teenagers about bad influences? 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character or good morals, right? But this verse, I will tell you, wasn't written to just teenagers, but everyone because we can all be influenced. This verse warns us to be careful who we are in close fellowship with. Who are your close friends? But it's not just that others influence us, but also we influence others as well, right? The question is, are we a good or bad influence on others? Do we help draw people close to the Christ, or do we draw them further away? Well, the first way we influence others is through conversations. The first way we influence others is through conversations. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul says that we need to be full of grace, full of kindness, full of love, seasoned with salt, which salt here represents truth. So we share Christ with others. We are definitely truth-oriented, but that truth is soaked. It's saturated in love. It's saturated in humility. It's saturated in gentleness. It's saturated in God's grace. The second way we influence others is through actions. The second way we influence others is through actions. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do our deeds reflect the light of Jesus Christ to others? What is inside of us comes out in what we say and what we do. We can't hide that. Do our actions influence others to praise our Lord in heaven? Well, in conclusion, in conclusion, Christ traveled to Jerusalem to die, to die a brutal death and face the wrath of God. And church history reveals that many have faithfully went to their death for the cause of Christ. And the question that we started out with was, would we be faithful unto death as well? But as we have mentioned before we get to suffering, the question is, are we living for him today? Our faithfulness to Christ in the future is a direct result of our faithfulness to Christ right now, in this present time. How dedicated to Christ are we in this moment? How is Christ being magnified in our lives today? How is Christ being magnified in our marriages? How is Christ being magnified in our relationships, our friendships? How is Christ being magnified in our workplaces? How is Christ being magnified in our personal time? If you are not sure 
about the love of God this morning, then I would turn your attention to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was willing and went to Jerusalem to suffer for our sakes, recognizing he knew every detail of what he was about to face. There's no other God but the one true God who offered his son, who sacrificed his son because of a motivation of love for his people, for his elect. May we, as a family church, live for Christ. May we worship God freely without expecting anything in return. May we use our influence to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across the nation. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word. That we can just dive deeply in and look at layer after layer as your word continues to go deeper. And we can see things clearer. And you allow us to mature and go deeper as well. As we see clear of who you are and your magnificence. As we see the greatness of you a little more today than we did yesterday that we are more humble than in awe of what Christ did for us on the cross, recognizing that we still struggle with sin. And that one of those sins cost, did Christ his life. Help us to be people who walk in repentance, people who are in awe of grace. Thank you for your love for us in Christ's name. Amen.